0: Have you ever been to a restaurant or Cedar Point or or something like that where you would have left them a fantastic review if it wasn't for that one person? When we were growing up, uh, one of our favorite uh, restaurants to go to after church was the Olive Garden. And Say what you will about the Olive Garden. We loved it, and we would have given it a glowing review every time except for Ted. Now, I don't know what happened the two times Ted was our waiter, but it was bad enough that every time we went up to the wait list, my dad would say, "Uh, yes, I would like non-smoking and non-Ted, please. it's it's interesting, right, how one individual can shape an entire review. And that's kind of what happens tonight in our text. Tonight, we're looking at uh, the letter to the church of Thyatira, which is the city that I have been most worried about pronouncing. The city of Thyatira was rather insignificant in the ancient world compared to the other cities we've looked at so far. But despite its small stature as a city, Jesus actually has some great things to say about it. But then then he name drops a specific person and uh, really roasts them in his his review. And so we're going to follow the same basic format we've been using in this series. We're going to look at what's good, bad, and what they're supposed to do about it. But just remember that there are two pieces in play here. There's the individual, and then there's the church. Okay? So the good, we find that in verse 19. He says, I know your works, your love, and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that, you, and that your latter works exceed the first. Once again, Jesus asserts himself as the all-seeing knower. And he proves it by listing, listing these four characteristics of the believers in Thyatira. And these words are axiomatic in the church, right? We, we hear them so often that we just nod and agree that those are good things without pausing to make sure we understand what they are. Here's the thing though, Jesus commends them for these four things, which means we need to understand what they are if Jesus thinks they're commendable, they're worth applauding. And so his first command, or he first commends them for their love. Love is probably one of the most versatile words in the English language, isn't it? Love can be used to describe how you feel about a person, a place, a piece of food, or an article of clothing. It's a word that is powerful enough to shape someone's life and trivial enough that it seems like nothing more than hello or goodbye. It can be a feeling. It can be a verb. Its uses seem almost endless. And in the Bible it has a lot of uses too, but here in this text, it's this amazing blend of emotion and action. It's, it's delighting, it's valuing another person and always acting favorably toward them. And the way that plays out in real life is by service. And you, you know this if you've ever been around a mother. Mothers love better than almost any category of people, right? Uh, I mean, it, Did you know that if your mom got paid for everything she did for you. It's calculated that she would make over $160,000 a year. And yet she does it all for free, for nothing. Why? Because she loves you. Because she delights and values you, which always manifests itself in service. This is what the believers in Thyatira were doing. Their love was playing out in service toward one another. That's one coupling. The other coupling, another axiomatic word, faith. Faith is one of those words that we always say, you have to have faith, but aren't always very clear about when you actually have it. And so I want you to think of faith kind of like a stool. This one has four, but just imagine it has three? Three Three-legged stool. Leg one is knowledge. You have to know facts, information, to have faith in something. Second leg. Is agreement. You have to acknowledge that those facts are actually true, that they actually have bearing on your life. And then third, trust. And the best way to think about that is a trust fall, right? Like there, there comes a point when you when you're doing a trust fall, when you lean back, that either the person is going to catch you or you're gonna wipe out on the floor. And that point of no return is trust. So those three legs have to be together for the faith stool to be true, to be real. And here's how you know if you have it. Here's how it manifests itself. Patient endurance. You might remember a few weeks ago, uh, we talked about this a little bit, that patient endurance is really just a fancy way of saying perseverance. It's the ability to keep going despite hardship and resistance. This is the, the proof that you have faith. And think about it. A stool can look stable and sturdy, right? But when hardship comes, proves that it's real, right? Faith is the same way. That It can look real, it can look like it has all the legs, but when trials come, when perseverance comes forth, it's the proof that your faith is real. Because the only reason that you would persevere, the only reason that you would have steadfast endurance, is because you are completely convinced that Jesus is the only option, that all of your eggs are in his basket these are the things that Christ commends the church and Thyatira for having but not only just having it they were growing in it they have more love and faith service and steadfast love at the writing of this letter than when they came to know the Lord and that is perhaps is one of the greatest compliments that Jesus can give to any church that they are growing in these things and I can be honest with you this is my prayer for all of you as well that when you graduate and head off to college or wherever else God may take you, that I can look at you and say that your love, your faith, your service, your steadfast endurance is greater now than when you came to the youth group or when we met. So Jesus has great things to say about the church at Thyatira, but not everything is peachy there. He goes on in verse 20. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. All right. What is the one thing that I have said over and over again that we have to remember when we come to Revelation? It's that it's apocalyptic literature, which means that it's using imagery from the Bible to pull back the curtain, to explain what's really happening. What that means is there is not a lady in Thyatira named Jezebel. Jezebel is a is a code name, it's an alias for whoever this is. And its purpose is to trigger a light in your in your head, to, to remind you of another Jezebel we find back in the Old Testament. And if you're having trouble placing who she is, Jezebel was the bad girl of the Old Testament. She took the, the northern kingdom of Israel, which was already disobeying the Lord, and, and made it far worse when she and her husband, King Ahab, led them into worshiping the false god Baal. And so whoever this woman is at Thyatira, she's leading them away from Jesus, much like Jezebel did in the Old Testament. I don't know about you, but I wish that that Jesus would have gone into a little more detail. How was she doing this? What what was she trying to accomplish? Stuff like that. He doesn't do that. Uh, But but individuals far smarter than me have looked at the the clues, and they've wagered a guess that I think makes sense. See, Thyatira was what we would call a guild city. Uh, Which just means that there were several guilds or groups, like blacksmiths, goldsmiths, other types of labor, who were centralized there. And in order to maintain membership in these groups, which was really essential for business, they had to participate in feasts to different gods. That might seem a little strange to us, but I want you to think about it kind of like um, club ball. okay? So uh, suppose you want to play soccer or volleyball for the school. I'm told that if you actually want to be a part of that guild, you really have to participate in club ball. Otherwise, you don't have much chance of being in the guild or getting to play. And so you can imagine the pressure that they were under if they wanted to play, right? If they wanted to be meaningfully employed, and yet they couldn't participate because their faith prevented them from doing so. And so Jezebel most likely was encouraged them, encouraging them to participate, telling them, it's fine if you participate in whatever is happening. Go ahead and sacrifice to the gods. It's fine. And Jesus wasn't going to let that stand. He was going to sideline her and anyone that was insistent on following her advice. But what about the rest of the church? What do those who weren't buying what she was selling need to do? Do they just get a pat on the back? Not quite. Look at verses 24 and 25. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who did not hold hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. Now before we get into what Jesus wants them and therefore us to do, we need to clear up what this deep things of Satan is. Your first guest, like mine, is probably witchcraft and wizardry, uh, but it's most likely a reference to how Jezebel was luring people away. She was probably claiming to possess some special knowledge, some deep things from God, that, that certain practices for, were okay for those who, who were in the know. Perhaps she packaged it like Christians and super-Christians, and the super-Christians had moved on from those fundamental things and weren't, weren't bound to the same rules and restrictions. Jesus says, ignore all that and hold fast. Keep doing what I have commended you for. Simply keep going and hold fast. And the more I've thought about that, the harder it seems to do. Because let's be honest with each other. We don't want to hold fast, do we? We would rather coast, give in, be part-time slash the weekends. We'd like to graduate from all this stuff. And much like us, my guess is that the believers in Thyatira were getting tired of the hard work. It's kind of like a modified version of that story of the the kid who, who stops up the leaky dam. Do you know the story I'm talking about? Where the kid's walking along, he realizes there's a leak in the dam and it'll flood his city, and so he puts his finger in the hole. Only in this version, everyone is still around everyone's still living their life and having a good time and here's the kid doing the diligent simple thing how do you think he feels Um, i would imagine that he would be quite frustrated wondering why in the world he was doing this no one else is doing it and perhaps you feel like that too perhaps you 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 look at what jesus has, has commended us for to grow in love and faith and service and patient endurance and it feels rather pointless It seems like there's no point to hold fast after all that's not going to get you into the best colleges it's not going to give you a six-figure salary so why do it and here's Jesus's answer to that Starting in verse 26 that the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Weird stuff, like normal, apocalyptic literature, but remember, it's tying back to something else in scripture, and that would be Psalms chapter two. If we were to turn to Psalms chapter two, it's a Psalm about Jesus ascending to the throne, being given all power, and he deals with his enemies in the way described here. And the point that the psalmist is trying to make is found in the last three verses of Psalm chapter two, which is verses 10 through 12. He says, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, don't misunderstand what John and the psalmist are saying here. They're not saying that you should hold fast because otherwise Jesus will crush you. It's not fear-based. Rather, they're saying that we should hold fast out of a delight for the Son who is now on the throne. That when we observe his ascension to power, which is really a humbling himself to death, even death on a cross, and that he wields that power to right us and the world, It changes our perspective on things. It causes us to serve him, to hold fast, to press on. And that's our challenge tonight. It's for each of you to hold fast, to pursue those four things and continue to be growing in them. And it's difficult, and you might miss out on some stuff. But in the end, as the psalmist tells us, Blessed are all who take refuge in him.